0: Hello everybody. This is Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies. I'm in Matthew 22. We're at Tuesday of the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus's life. He has already cleansed the temple on Monday, cursed the fig tree on the way into Jerusalem on Monday morning, and he spent all day teaching the Pharisees and the crowd and the Sadducees and the chief priest and the and the big shots in Israel. He's been teaching them in the in the temple complex and He's giving them three parables which were very clear that God was going to take their place away from the Jews. He was going to destroy their city and burn it up, and he was going to go to the Gentiles. The gospel of the kingdom was going to be taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles, which, of course, was fulfilled in the church. Now, we're at the stage of his ministry on Tuesday where his opponents are still testing him, and he's answering all the questions, which is fun to see. And pretty soon we're going to get to the point where they're scared to mess with him anymore. They're just going to try to kill him. Matthew 22 verse 23, the same day, that's Tuesday of Passion Week, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. Now, the Sadducees not only denied that there was a resurrection, they denied anything miraculous. They, they did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They did not believe in immortality of the soul. They didn't even believe in heaven. They're a perfect rationalist of, of Jesus' day. Now, let's talk a little bit about Sadducees. I'm going to read you a definition of Sadducees out of Easton's Illustrated Dictionary. Then I will give you a description that Adam Clark gave of them. And you should understand the Sadducees pretty soon by the time I finish this. This is from Easton's quote. The origin of this Jewish sect cannot definitely be traced. It was probably the outcome of the influence of Grecian customs and philosophy during the period of Greek domination. That's the Hel- is, They were very sympathetic to the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem at that time. The first time they were met with is in connection with John the Baptist's ministry. They came out to him when on the banks of the Jordan, and he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The next time they are spoken of, they are represented as coming to our Lord, tempting him. He calls them hypocrites and a wicked and adulterous generation. This is in Matthew 16, Matthew 22. The only reference to them in the Gospels of Mark and Luke is they are attempting to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection which they denied, as they also denied the existence of angels. They are never mentioned in John's Gospel. There were many Sadducees among the elders of the Sanhedrin. They seem indeed to have been as numerous as the Pharisees. So Sadducees liked to rule. They weren't as interested in teaching so much as the Pharisees were. They showed their, The Sadducees showed their hatred of Jesus in taking part in his condemnation. They endeavored to prohibit the apostles from preaching the resurrection of Christ. This is in Acts after Jesus was resurrected. They were the deists, or skeptics of that age. They do not appear as a separate sect after the destruction of Jerusalem. Good riddance. Now let's see what Adam Clark says about them. The Sadducees had their origin and name from one Sadoc, a disciple of Antigonus of Socho, president of the Sanhedrin, and teacher of the law in one of the great divinity schools in Jerusalem, about 260 years bef- 264 years before the Incarnation. This Antigonus, Antigonus of Socho, having often in his lectures informed his scholars that they should not serve God through expectation of a reward, but through love and filial reverence only, Sadoc conferred from this teaching that there was neither rewards nor punishments after this life, and by consequence that there was no resurrection of the dead, nor angel, nor spirit in the invisible world, and that man is to be rewarded or punished here for the good or evil he does. They received only the five books of Moses, and rejected all unwritten traditions. That, of course, put them at odds with the Pharisees. From every account we have of the sect, it plainly appears they were a kind of mongrel deist and professed materialist. Here's some quick facts from the NIV study Bible. The Sadducees represented the wealthy and sophisticated classes. They were located largely in Jerusalem. The administration of the temple was their primary interest. They were small in number. However, they exerted powerful political and religious influence, They denied the resurrection, they accepted only the Torah as authoritative, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses' five books, and they flatly rejected the oral tradition which made them opposed to the Pharisees and the common piety of the day. Now, this trick question that was asked of Jesus that we're going to look at here in just a minute, they were, that this story has parallels in Mark 12 and Luke 20, there's not much to add as far as the parallels go, so we won't read them. Let's go to Matthew 22, verse 24. The Sadduce- Sadducees say this, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies, having no children, his brothers, to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is a straightforward statement of the Levirate Law. Levirate Levir is Latin for brother-in-law, and so the law has become to be known as the Levirate Law. And what the law said is that if a... Woman lost her husband, the husband's brother was supposed to marry her and have kids with her. Now, what was the purposes of that? To protect the widow, to guarantee continuance of the family line, to protect the widow because she wouldn't have any, way, any income, and the brother would then provide for her so she would have income and she would also have children. Of course, that was a big deal back there in Jewish society. Now, this Levirate Law is said to be authored by Moses because the Pharisee here said, excuse me, the Sadducees said teacher Moses said, he's referring to Deuteronomy 25, five through six, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This of course carries out the public policy of Israel, which is to increase their population because they were that population was a big problem. That's why Jewish women wanted to have babies all the time. And this woman would not be able to have babies if her husband died. So her brother-in-law is supposed to help carry it on. It's not very romantic, but that's the way they did things back then. Now, We're going to see that since the Sadducees are quoting from the Torah, the only five books they considered authoritative, Jesus is going to do all his quoting from the Pentateuch also in order to respect, in order to convince the Sadducees who would not believe a scripture from another book. Go to verse 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 of Matthew 22. Now there were seven brothers among us. The Sadducees are still talking. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second also in the third, and so to all seven. So all seven brothers are dead, all having married the woman. So that woman had the benefit of having seven different husbands. Now, of course, this is hypothetical. Gil says it may or may not have been true. I don't believe it's true. This is a story the Sadducees made up, hypothetical. First 27, then last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they had all married her. Now, this is an interesting question. Now, what the Sadducees are getting at, they're trying to ridicule the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So what they're saying is, look, if there's a resurrection, Jesus, now, of course, we know that Jesus believed in the resurrection. If there's a resurrection, how is this woman going to find her proper husband up there with seven ex-husbands up there? It's going to be kind of hard. Now, this is how their trap was designed to work. If Jesus denied the resurrection to avoid the absurdity of one wife having seven husbands, The Sadducees would win against the Pharisees because Jesus would deny the resurrection, and therefore the Pharisees would be mad at Jesus, and that would give them a reason to attack him. But if Jesus said he didn't know the answer to it, this would make him look weak in front of the people. So Jesus had to answer. But if Jesus affirmed the resurrection and said, No, you Sadducees are wrong, there is a resurrection, then he's going to have to explain his way out of the absurdity of one wife having seven husbands. That, of course, uh, and by affirming the resurrection, he would anger the Sadducees. He not only would have to explain how one wife could have seven husbands in heaven, he would also have to bear the anger of the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. So it was a pretty good trap. The rabbis, by the way, on this momentous problem said that the first wife would be, excuse me, the first husband would be the the, hus, the wife's husband in the resurrection. The first brother that died would be the one that married the wife. Now, now, of course, Jesus doesn't believe in marriage and, and the resurrection, so you would disagree with the rabbis here. Matthew twenty-two, twenty-nine through 30, Jesus answered them, you are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Well, he hits them right between the eyes, as usual. You don't know anything. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, as a preliminary here, This used to bother me, no marriage in heaven, I'm not going to have my wife when I get to heaven. And then I thought, you know, as everybody does, they start thinking, well, that means there's not going to be any sex in heaven. Now, what kind of heaven can that be? I'll tell you what it is. If heaven is better than sex, can you imagine how great that's going to be that people don't care that they aren't having sex? Lord have mercy. Heaven is going to be a glorious place. Now, why did Jesus say that they didn't know, the Sadducees didn't know the scriptures? Well, because they didn't know the resurrection. Now, he's going to quote a scripture that shows that there was a resurrection in just a minute, and we're going to talk at this Old Testament. Talk about this Old Testament verse that proves the resurrection. Now, they didn't know about the resurrection, and what Jesus meant is they didn't know it existed, and they also didn't know that things weren't going to be the same in the next age, in the age to come. So they didn't know anything. They didn't know the scriptures about the resurrection. They didn't know that, that there was not going to be any marriage in the resurrection. They just didn't know these things. And you don't know the power of God, Jesus tells the Sadducees. What he's referring to is the power of God to raise people at the last day. Now, this is going to be an awesome event. And this is something that I've had trouble with with my little faithless small mind. But God is going to raise up the dead. The resurrection of the dead is in all the creeds. It was believed by every section of Christendom, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Protestant. You deny the resurrection of the dead, you are a heretic By in everybody's books. So... Jesus is going to show from the scriptures from the actually from the Pentateuch, because that's the only part of the scriptures the Sadducees accepted. He's going to show that there's a resurrection of the dead. So he starts in verse thirty one and go into verse thirty three Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read? Jesus says to the Sadducees, Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and Jesus continues he God is not the God of the dead, but of the the living. Now what he's doing here, he's saying, look, how can God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are are still living? This was about 30, uh, 26, 27, 28, it's about 30 AD, say, roughly, and Jesus says, I'm the God of Abraham. Well, Abraham died 2,000 years before that. How can God still be the God of Abraham if Abraham physically has been in the grave for 2,000 years? How? It's because Abraham is alive in the resurrection. Same thing with Isaac, and same thing with Jacob. Actually, to be more precise, Moses wrote that about, what, 1400 or so B.C., 1450 or so B.C., and Abraham died in 2000 B.C., so you're talking about, what, four, five 500, 500 years or so that Abraham was alive when Moses wrote. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching, because Jesus knew the Bible, and he knew how to, to apply it, and he knew the truth. So we're going to look uh, at some at the place in Exodus where Jesus quoted from to get some more context here, Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Moses, the angel of the Lord is probably Jesus, appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? when the lord saw that he had gone over to look god called out to him from the bush moses moses here i am he answered do not come closer he god said remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground then he god continued i am the god of your father the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So that's the famous story in the Old Testament where Jesus quotes this thing. He says, "I am the God of your fa- I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." God says the same thing a few verses later in verse chapter three of Exodus, verse sixteen. He says, "Go to the go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." Same idea. Go to Matthew twenty-two verses thirty-four through thirty-six. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and by the way, how did he silence the Sadducees? First of all, he showed from the scriptures that there was a resurrection. And second of all, he said, just because there's a resurrection, that doesn't cause domestic relations problems with people who've been married more than once, because there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. We learned something there. Our relationship with each other is going to be a little bit different. Now, I'm sure you're going to know your spouse but you're going to know a lot of other people, and you're not going to be related in families like we do now. The family, marriage in the family is, is an earthly institution. is to propagate the race and, and, get, and to, to keep it in existence, to keep it moving, if you will. But that's not going to be necessary in heaven because the number of the elect is fixed, glorified, no more offspring, no more propagating. And we're going to be so happy we won't need to have sex, and we won't need to have a, a spouse. And now I know that's kind of hard to conceive. Again, faith is the essence of things not seen. I'm sure it's going to be wonderful, whatever it is. Verse 34 through 36. Now we move from the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees come up and they're going to take their shot at Jesus. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is greatest? Now, you would normally think the Pharisees are just tickled pink that the Sadducees got their comeuppance when Jesus humiliated them just then, amazed the crowd with his teaching. But the Pharisees, even though they didn't like the Sadducees, they hated Jesus even worse. They weren't interested. They weren't standing around rejoicing that the Sadducees had got beaten. They were regretting and remorseful that Jesus had won. So now they're going to try to get him. Which command is the greatest, they said. Now, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. How had they heard that? Either they were present or they heard it by word of mouth. So now Jesus already, he's already silenced the Pharisees and Herodians who came together and asked him about should, they, should, should Jesus and his disciples pay taxes to Caesar or not. He'd already shut them up. Render unto Caesar was Caesar, render unto God was God. Don't put me into a false dichotomy here. He's now silenced the Sadducees about resurrection and marriage in the next life. Now we're gonna, they're going to test him and see uh, if he can answer a weighty question of the law. Now Mark actually calls this expert in the law that questioned him a lawyer. Some people say it wasn't a Pharisee. The verse says it's a Pharisee, but apparently there was some kind of sect called a charrite who rejected oral traditions but they were still experts in the law. I don't know about that. I'm going to just take that as somebody's speculation. We'll assume this is a Pharisee here and let's point out some background to this. They asked what is the or he asked the expert in the law asked what is the greatest law. Now the Jews love to distinguish greater and lesser laws. Here's some distinctions they made. The first table of the law is held to be greater than the second table. That's the Ten Commandments. The commandments about God are greater than the commandments about interpersonal relations. The Pharisees held that affirmative commands are greater than prohibitions, commands which are prohibitions. The Pharisees held that ceremonial laws were often held. They often held that ceremonial laws were greater than moral laws. Now, Jesus actually alludes to these distinctions that the, the Pharisees loved to make. Matthew 23:23, the next chapter, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. So see, the Pharisees said, well, here's a little law. You've got to tithe mint, you've got to tie a dill, now a tie of cumin. So uh, he's, he's alluding to the fact that the Pharisees are distinguishing laws out all the while managing to avoid the, the greater categories of the law. Jesus admits that there are different, by the way, different levels of the law. Because he said, more important matters of the law in Matthew 23, you have neglected the, quote, more important matters of the law. Some matters of the law are more important than the others. For example, justice, mercy, and faith is more important than a tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. So Jesus knows this gradation in the law, but the Pharisees were hyper about it. Also, the Pharisees distinguish heavy laws from light laws, in other words, great laws from little laws. And the law was divided into 613 individual statutes. That's pretty famous. And each of those laws was categorized as heavy or light. Uh, The Pharisees had divisions of opinion about which was greater, heavier, light. For example... Uh, and they had a, a division of opinions to what was the greatest law of all, the heaviest law of all. Was it the Sabbath? Was it the three feast days, Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths? Was it circumcision? Was it wearing the scriptures and the phylacteries on the wrist and on the forehead? The fringe on your garment, was that the most important thing? Some of them said there's no one that was the greatest. If you broke one, you were guilty of all the rest. So there was a big dis- difference of opinion. And so this teacher of the law wanted to drag Jesus into this internal pharisaical controversy. Now, notice this person that's asking Jesus this. He's called a lawyer in the King James. That's misleading because we think of a lawyer as a paid advocate. The Holman Christian Study Bible calls him an expert in the law, which is a much better way to translate that. Now, what was the tip? Verse 35 here says that this expert was testing Jesus. Now, the question is, is what kind of a test was this? Well, it could be a test in that he was going to make somebody mad because there was divisions of opinion, as I've just said, and that no matter what, which position Jesus take, he was going to make some segment of the crowd angry at him, or some segment of the Pharisees angry at him, or at least they were going to disagree. I, would, I have a problem with that because it seems to me that if everybody's got all these different opinions, just because you take one opinion, you're not going to make everybody else mad at you because everybody's already divided up, and so there's not a consensus about what's right and what's wrong. Like Resurrection of the Dead, there was a huge divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I can understand how that would be bad, putting Jesus on one side or the other, but here, because there was so much dispute. But at any rate, I sus- probably this expert in the law was probably going to get Jesus tangled up in this in this uh, debate about what was the greatest law. Now, John Gill says that this test was not a mean-spirited test. The scribe was just merely testing Jesus' knowledge against his own, not in a mean-spirited way. I don't think so. This is what Gill says. This expert in the law was one of the Pharisaic party who seemed to enjoy the defeat he, he, Jesus, had given to the Sadducees. We may suppose that, though somewhat priding himself upon his insight into the law, and not indisposed to measure his knowledge with one in whom he had not learned to believe, he was nevertheless an honest-hearted, fair disputant. Well, that's interesting. I don't think so. I think he was trying to test him in the bad sense. He was trying to get him tangled up trying to show that the great messiah the great rabbi jesus was not as great a greater rabbi as he thought he was ah uh, but the man as usual was wrong about jesus matthew 22 verse 37 he jesus said to him the expert in the law love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this Is a quote from deuteronomy 6 5 was that the shema forgot what you call that i think that's it Which says literally that, well almost literally, it says Deuteronomy 6, 5, home Christian study Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Strength is, Matthew says mind, Deuteronomy is strength. Some manuscripts in in the Septuagint have mind. Jesus, Matthew's probably quoting from the Septuagint, or Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint most probably, maybe. At any rate, Mark 12, verse 30, a parallel passage, Mark puts all the terms in there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. doesn't really matter. The point is you're supposed to love God with everything you got. We can talk about what heart, soul, and mind is. First of all, let's talk about what love is. Love the Lord your God. The word is agapao, agapao, which, of course, from which we get the word agape love, which everybody knows about. Now... There is another Greek word for love, which is phileo, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, phileo, that expresses friendly friendly affection, according to the Study Bible. Now, I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here. There is a myth out there in the Christian world that phileo only refers to love between friends and agape only refers to love for God. That is absolutely not true. I believed this myth for years until I sat down and looked it up one time in a Greek concordance and I said, whoa, here's phileo referring to love for God easy to show and there's also many articles on the internet exposing the myth too so you do a word study on the two words it becomes obvious that phileo applies sometimes to love for god and agape sometimes applies to love for friends so don't make that mistake all right now what is all your heart well heart can mean the whole inner man body soul and excuse me mind will and emotions heart just stands for all of that mind will and emotions which is kind of what I think it is, or it could just refer to the emotions. Your heart is where your emotions are. Love God with all your emotions. Now, favoring that view is because then he goes with all your soul, whatever that is, which would be, and then he says with all your mind, so the mind would be distinguished out from your heart a little bit. Or, but I don't know, it could be overlapping. So I don't think we ought to be, make a big deal. We ought not to logic chop the definitions of heart, soul, and mind. It just means your inner being, your heart, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your soul means your mind, your will, and emotions. And all your mind means your mind. With all your strength means with everything you got. Another possible definition of heart is with all your sincerity. Like the the woman loved her husband with all her heart, with all sincerity. No double-mindedness in there. Could be, but I believe this, you, you everything you got. Now, how did Jesus answer this? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that the answer is a little bit nicer, actually, because the man gave an honest question. Jesus gave an honest answer. This is what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, Our Lord's answer is in a strain of respect very different from what he showed to cavaliers, ever observing his own direction. Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. In other words... He wasn't so open with the people who were uh, debating with him. He just basically said, God's going to burn down your city. He gave him parables. <laughs> but this guy uh, earned a little bit of respect from Jesus as Jesus gave him his answer, which was a fantastic answer, by the way. How can you beat that for an answer? The greatest commandment of all is to love God with all your strength. Matthew 22, verse 38. Jesus says this is the greatest and most important command. Now, here's a question. What, in what sense is it the greatest command? Could it be that the object of the command is greatest, to love God? The greatest thing that can be done is to love God. I think that's probably what it is. Another option, this is from John Gill. It's the greatest commandment because it is the foundation principle from which all other obligations follow. Well, that's another, that's another way of saying the same thing, really. It's greatest in dignity. It's the greatest because it's the first in time. The first table of the law deals with love for God. What is it? I think it's the first four commandments. The The first commandment was to worship God alone. So it's the greatest commandment because it was the first in the list of the 10 commandments. I don't know. I just think it's the greatest because loving God is the greatest thing you can do. Now here is a great summary by Adam Clark of how the law of love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, how it's the greatest commandment. I'm going to give you 10 statements by Adam Clark to show how great this commandment is. The commandment... Is great because in its antiquity, being as old as the world, uh, it was engraved originally on our very nature to love God. Number two, it's greatest in dignity. It's directly and immediately immediately proceeding front and referring to God. I'm not exactly sure of his old fashioned grammar there. Third point, the law is greatest in excellence, being the commandment of the new covenant in the very spirit of the divine adoption. Number four, the law. To love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest injustice because it alone renders to God His due, prefers Him before all things, and secures to Him his proper rank in relation to them. Number five, the command to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest insufficiency being in itself capable of making men holy in this life and happy in the other. This commandment number six is greatest in its fruitfulness because it is the root of all commandments and the fulfilling of the law. Number seven, this commandment to love God with all your heart is greatest in virtue and efficacy, because by this alone God reigns in the heart of man, and man is united to God. Number eight, this law to love God with all your heart is greatest in extent, leaving nothing to the creature which it does not refer to the Creator. Number nine, this Law to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is greatest in necessity because it is absolutely indispensable. And number ten, this commandment to love God with all your heart is greatest in duration, being ever to be continued on earth and never to be discontinued in heaven. So, I think I've beat this horse pretty good. We're supposed to love God, that's it. I mean, you want to get balled up and all the tithing to us, worship on Sunday, and all that stuff, hey, love God with all your heart. Now, I don't mean being an antinomian. Yes, we have to look at the law and the particulars, and we have to make ethical decisions and all that, but the foundational principle by which we work out our theological problems and our scriptural understandings has got to be based on the fact we're doing this because we love God. If you don't love God, what difference does it make what you do? People go out and do whatever they want to do, and they end up ruining their lives and making life miserable on this planet. But if we love God, if we love God interpreting the law and living an ethical life is more or less going to take care of itself. Matthew chapter 22 verse 39. The second greatest commandment, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus only had two laws. The legalistic Jews had 613. Now it's the second commandment because loving your neighbor springs from the love of God. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. By this rule we are taught to bear with, love, and forgive him, but forgive our neighbor. To rejoice in his felicity, mourn in his adversity, desire and delight in his prosperity, and promote it to the utmost of our power. Instruct his ignorance, help in his, in his weakness, and risk even our life for his sake and for the public good. Love your neighbor. And you notice this hasn't got anything to do with emotions. It's got to do with what you do for your neighbor. Now here's some scriptures uh, in the New Testament which quotes this. Uh, is actually, well, let's start with what Jesus was quoting. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. I should have mentioned this first. He was quoting Leviticus 19.18, which is a very famous law. It comes up in theological discussions a lot. It says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, John Gill in discussing what is a neighbor, he said that this commandment stands in Leviticus 19.18 and respects not an Israelite only or one of the same religion with a man's self or his intimate friend and acquaintance or one that lives in the same neighborhood, but any man what for whatever, kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbor. Now, this is picked up by Paul in Romans 13.8 and 13.10. 13.8 says this, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. We owe our fellow brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters, we owe them a debt. And what is that debt? To love them. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Jesus said this is the second greatest commandment. Paul says you love one another, you fulfill the law. That's it. (laughs) Most of all those Old Testament, 613 commands in the Old Testament, most of them basically had this subject doing good to your fellow israelite and jesus said do good to your fellow believer you fulfill the law romans 13:10. love does no wrong to a neighbor love therefore is the fulfillment of the law now these verses are good for those who think the old testament law only has judgment no no love it's got love in it right here love your neighbor this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself jesus quoted um, let's see, he quoted Leviticus 19:18 again in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said this in Luke 10, verse 25 through 27. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he ran those two commandments together just like Jesus did. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see the idea of love encapsulates, encapsulates, or summarizes the law. Loving God, first great commandment, and love your neighbor is the second great commandment. Jesus continues in verse 40, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now when he says all the law and the prophets, he doesn't mean all the promises, the history, the poetry, and all that. Law and prophet stands for the whole canon, the Old Testament canon. Not just the law and the prophets, but the law, the prophets, the writings. This is a, a, a common way of referring to the Hebrew scriptures. But he, he's not meaning to say that every little historical detail depends on loving your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about all all things concerning duty, as John Gill puts it. Anything that has to do with duty towards your neighbor or towards God, it's all there. Love God, love your neighbor, as, love God with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. All right, I'm going to stop it right here. We'll take up the tail end of Matthew 22 when we talk about the question the Pharisees asked Jesus, whose son is the Messiah? That's the only thing left in Matthew chapter 22. Should not take too long to go over that. So I'll do that in the next section. I hope you enjoyed this audio.